My name is Jeff Sparrow. There's been a lot of concern about the loss of historical and beautiful buildings in Australia's major cities. To talk about that and other issues, I'm joined today by Felicity Watson, Advocacy Manager of the National Trust of Australia. Welcome to Hullabaloo. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Before we go too far, maybe we can start off by talking about the National Trust. Where did it come from? What kind of organisation is it? What does it aim to do? So the National Trust was formed actually 61 years ago. We had our 60th anniversary last year. So it was formed in 1956 and it the formation really came after a call to action by architect Robin Boyd, who's now a kind of leading figure Iconic that we look figure. to in um, Victoria's history now. Um, but there was a concern amongst the community that there were um, lots of historic buildings and um, historic streetscapes that were being lost. There there were no legal protections for heritage places. So Robin Boyd issued this call to action and the National Trust was formed in 1956 um, to basically to fight for places to be protected into the future. So the National Trust movement over the next couple of decades really shaped um, the face of Melbourne. A lot of the 19th century buildings that we um, appreciate now as being you know, p- part of our state heritage, but also part of our national heritage, like the uh, Gold Rush architecture of Collins Street, the Royal Exhibition Building, the Queen Victoria Market. Many of those places um, were the subject of National Trust campaigns to save them. So that advocacy role has continued to be, I guess, at the heart of what the National Trust does. But it's changed over time as people's uh, understanding and appreciation of history and their heritage um, has evolved over time. So what we've um, really grown to become is Australia, uh, sorry, Victoria's largest uh community-based heritage organisation. So we're independent from government. Um, We're a membership organisation with about 24,000 members across Victoria. 
and we're a community of people who want to continue to fight for our heritage um, th- as new threats emerge. Okay, let, let's talk about how that mission has changed. The National Trust website focuses on natural, indigenous and cultural heritage. Those three points are not the same, so maybe we can talk about each of them in turn. I was a little bit surprised about the focus on natural heritage because I guess like most people, I've thought about the National Trust in terms of buildings, but what do we mean? What do you mean in that context by um, national uh, natural sorry natural heritage? What would be some examples of uh, of the trust's work in that area? Sure. So I, I do think that it's um, probably one of the lesser known aspects of what we do. It's interesting that when the National Trust was formed, um, Robin Boyd's call was to create a society or trust for the preservation of historical and meritorious buildings in Victoria. But that very soon expanded to encompass um, lots of different kinds of heritage. So natural heritage is um, a big focus of the National Trust. So we look at everything from um, significant landscapes, so coastal landscapes on the Mornington Peninsula or the Bass Coast, um, also um, inland landscapes where there might be significant environmental um, values within those landscapes. We also have a register of significant trees um, across Victoria and we're adding trees to that all the time. Are these judged... Aesthetically, environmentally, ecologically? Yeah, all, all of those, all of the above. So they're, um, they're sort of judged on a range of um, measures like the things that you've just outlined, so size, um, rarity, um, whether or not it might be associated with um, an important person who might have planted it or um, avenues of honour are, are something that we've looked at um, in recent years as being significant not just for their environmental and aesthetic values but for their commemorative value and the um, the stories that they can tell about the, the people that they commemorate. Is there a particular tree that people might know? So looking at specific trees... Um, I'm trying to think of of one particular example. Um, there are certainly trees in places like the Royal Botanic Gardens. I mean, the separation tree famously was Yeah, was, so the separation was tree was certainly yes. one, and that was a tragic case, unfortunately. Um, and we do see some, you know, some kind of illegal activity happening around um, trees where people try and remove them because of the amenity value. Um, But we have lots registered across um, Melbourne, for example, um, native species like eucalypts, but also, um, for example, um, Royal Parade is one of our um, significant... classifications for trees because of the um, the elm trees that are along Royal Parade are really significant in a state context but also as elm trees have become rarer um, across the world um, they're they're quite rare now and and we're lucky in Melbourne to have good examples of those and Royal Parade's a really excellent example. So what would be the difference between your focus 
and say, I don't know, the Australian Conservation Foundation or an organisation like Greenpeace in terms of the natural heritage? So I think there are definitely areas where we overlap um, with organisations like that and we try to collaborate and work closely with other organisations where our kind of priorities align. But I guess the National Trust, um, the the point of difference with, with our focus is looking at the cultural aspects of those um, environmental areas so looking at um the um the significance that they might have to the community how they've influenced um leisure and development over time um how um how i guess humans have shaped the landscape over you know many many thousands of years and um, how that's evident today in our natural landscape Okay, speaking of shaping the landscape over many, many thousands of years, you also have a focus on Indigenous heritage, which I also did not know. So tell us about that. Give us some examples of um, Indigenous heritage that the Trust is involved with. Yeah, so this is a relatively new um, area of focus um, in the history of the National Trust, but it's really um, important part of the work that we do now. Um, over the past several years, we have worked um, very hard to develop um, strategies for our organisation to engage with the Aboriginal community and to empower the Aboriginal community to protect their cultural heritage and raise awareness with the community more broadly about why Aboriginal cultural heritage is important and how it's contributed to um, the, I guess, the pre-European history of our country, but how it's also a living culture that's ongoing and how um, Aboriginal cultural practices are still practised today. Um, so we're actually just about to launch our third Reconciliation Action Plan. So that is a document that we've developed to outline all of the strategies that we um, put in place um, to achieve um, the goal of reconciliation and work and work towards that. So, for example, we have a um, expert Aboriginal advisory committee, which um, is a committee that reports to our board that provides us with guidance on how we should undertake reconciliation um, actions. So examples of things that we've done um, several um, several years ago, we handed back one of our properties to the traditional owners. Um, it was a property up in the, the Wimmera um, called the Ebenezer Mission and a really significant property um, to the Aboriginal traditional owners, the Berenji Gadjan. So we worked with them to actually hand them back that property so that they could um, become the managers of that property and um, be the custodians of their own cultural heritage. We've also done um, Aboriginal cultural heritage surveys of our own properties. So places like Ripponlea and Como, people sort of see these places as um, you know, yes, 19th century. Settler. Yeah, exactly. But there are all these other layers of significance. You know, a lot of them were built in locations that were near waterways or had, um, you know, trees or environments that were significant to the Aboriginal people. And of course, there were lots of interactions between the Aboriginal people and the people who um, settled these areas. So we've been doing research on that um, to work out how we can tell those stories that our properties um in in an appropriate way. Okay, the third category is cultural heritage. Now, I assume by that you mean primarily buildings and architecture. Is that correct? 
Yeah, so the, it's, it's primarily the built environment, um, but there are lots of different aspects to that that we look at. So I, th- I guess what people usually associate with the trust is looking at buildings and the bricks and mortar of the buildings. But um, more and more we've um, been sort of working in the space of understanding why places are significant to people in a social sense and in a historic sense and how you can protect those places. So a really good example of that is um, the kind of focus on pubs um, that's been in the media quite a lot over the past 12 months or so and this disconnect between the places that people really value. So, for example, the um, the demolition of the Greyhound Hotel and the London Hotel um, in the city of Port Phillip, those examples really highlighted that these places weren't just bricks and mortar, they were also community places that had incredibly long histories of being community spaces, but those values had not been recognised um, and protected. So it's possible that these buildings are aesthetically ugly or hideous, but they are culturally significant to the community. Yeah, potentially. I mean, that's an extreme way of looking at it. Um, <laughs> you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, and sometimes um, these places might not demonstrate what you know, architectural connoisseurs might think of as architectural purity or, you know, a great example of a particular style. But they've got all these other values that are really embedded in the fabric of that building so that even if you um, keep the facade of that building and put an apartment building behind it, you've actually lost what's significant about that building to the community. Okay, so that goes really to the heart of it. Once you discover, once you decide that a building is significant in some way, whether that's historically, architecturally, aesthetically, what powers do you have? I mean, you're an NGO, you're not a government body. What happens once you list a building as being significant? That's right. So what we what we do is use our independent um, kind of advocacy um, role to lobby government to protect these buildings so um, it it always depends um, what the circumstances are around um, the particular building but a lot of the work that we do is um, working to support councils to do research on the places that people value in the community um, to provide protection for those places under the planning scheme and in the case of of places of state significance we sometimes um, nominate those to the state Heritage Register um, to provide an added layer of protection for those as well. Okay, tell me about that then. When something gets on the Heritage Register, what does that mean? What kind of protection does that give the building? So it what the what the inclusion on the State Heritage Register means that if you want to do something to that building, if you want to adapt it for a new use or um, put an extension on it or demolish it, you need to apply for a permit to the state government heritage body, which is Heritage Victoria. So I think there are a lot of misconceptions in the community about what heritage listing means. Um, People think that it means that you can't do anything to that place and that it's going to be locked up. Um, But that's um, not the case. And um, I think what we're trying to advocate for is for um, places to evolve and change um, 
so that they can remain relevant and vibrant and active places, um, but for that to be done in an appropriate way. So it means that you need a permit to do those things, but Heritage Victoria will work with applicants um, to try and um, compromise on something that will um, fulfil the objectives of what the owner is trying to achieve, but also protect the heritage of that place. Because we all know that property values are going through the roof, which means that there's a lot of money involved in these decisions. Now, I was renting a few years ago a property in Coburg, which had some beautiful old gum trees, when the owner wanted to do something, these trees mysteriously died. And the story that we were told was that the developers had just really, yes, they'd probably have to pay a fine, but in the scale of the money that they could make from this property, it was nothing. Is that a common occurrence that people just decide, well, okay, it might be heritage listed, but if we knock it down, we'll pay a fine, but there's millions to be made here, so we don't care. Yes, I think that's an issue. And I think it's becoming more and more common as property values, you know, go through the roof, but the penalties don't, you know, have a commensurate, um, you know, rise um, to reflect, you know, how that might impact on property values. And for example, yesterday um, in the Bendigo Advertiser, there was an article about um, a guy that had just been um, convicted in the magistrate's court of illegally demolishing a place on a heritage overlay. And I think he got a $20,000 fine for that, um, plus costs. So that's a significant, you know, fine, but potentially leads to an increase in value of that property um, in the order of, say, $100,000. So penalties and um, disincentives for that kind of um, action is something that we're closely looking at, particularly in the wake of the demolition of the Corkman Hotel, um, that really kind of... Because that seems to have been calculated, yeah? They, they, they knew that that was um, protected and they just decided that they didn't care. Well, they certainly should have known that it was protected um, because it was very clearly on the heritage overlay. Um, it's hard to know what kind of thought processes were involved in that um, event because it was so kind of chaotic and catastrophic and there's been so little information that we've been able to glean about what actually happened. Um, but generally people who take these actions would be aware of the consequences um, of those actions. But I think that it's becoming more... Um, the community is becoming more conscious of it and there's more sort of media coverage about these things happening. And I think that's actually um, a disincentive as well. But I think what the National Trust wants to do is to educate property owners about the value that heritage can bring to their property. Um, I think that we underestimate um, the the value that historic fabric can bring and the way that we can work with heritage places um, to update them and make them more, um, you know, relevant to today's um, society. Um, but I think that that is underplayed. I think that we put too much value um, as a society on, you know, what the potential value of a place is or what the monetary value is a place, of a place is. Yes, because my, my sense is that most developers would look at a historic property simply in terms of its location and the calculation would be we can put a huge apartment building 
on top of it and it might be ugly, it might be cheaply made, but there is so much money to be made here. Yeah, I think um, it's very clear that that's what's happening. And when you look at real estate advertisements for properties, you often just see, um, you know, a boundary line around the block and a calculation of the square meterage of that block and the words development potential or development opportunity. And I think that those properties are really being pitched in that way. Um, So we really have a big job to do, um, not only to educate potential owners, but also the real estate industry and councils um, about the value of heritage and about what you know what controls are in place to protect that heritage, and I think what we what we realise is that it will never be possible to save everything. We have a growing population. We will need to have more intense development um, in our city and in our suburbs, and that um, you know that's not necessarily a bad thing. We've had you know significant periods of change in Melbourne before, and this is another period of change. But it's the way that we manage that change, and I think um, we need to look at how um, our historic places actually um, provide a sense of place um, for for communities and and the value of that. And if we take that away, um, then it takes away what what makes that place a really great place to live yes i mean my my sense of it would be that the people who are making these decisions are not weighing up you know the 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 potential conflict between i don't know heritage and sentiment and the needs of a growing population the people are making these decisions are simply concerned about a quick buck and it seems to me that developers increasingly have political and economic clout in our major cities and that they are systematically ruining the built environment. Is that your perception of it? I mean, I think that it's undeniable that the, you know, the development lobby um, has a lot of power and resources behind it. Um, and that's where it's crucial for the community to get together and to say this is not something that we're going to accept and to have a voice um, to their local government, to their state government, um, to their federal government um, to to provide that other side of the argument. And that's what I see the role of the National Trust is, to be that community. Um, we want people to join us and to support our advocacy work um, in order to, to fight these battles and to demonstrate that people will not accept um, what's going on at the moment. Where does Heritage stand as a priority for the major political parties at the moment? Because, again, I would imagine that there's a fairly common sentiment out there that the developers are putting a lot of money into politics. Yeah, I think I think that Heritage is actually something that is of great interest um, to politicians and it's because of that community sentiment. Um, it's because, you know, the community cares about its heritage and it's in some ways coming under unprecedented threats. So if we look at, for example, the inner ring suburbs of eastern Melbourne, um, there's a lot of political pressure being put on representatives in those areas to actually go into bat for heritage because people are concerned about the level of development that's happening. And we are actually seeing that influencing decisions um, at a council level and also at a state government level. Um, So I think that it's it's certainly influencing the decisions of um, 
of our elected representatives and I think it will be a big issue going into the 2018 state election. What do you see as the connection between, I don't know, what we might call the uglification of our cities and their increasing unaffordability? Because it seems to me that these two tendencies are developing alongside each other. It's not simply that people can't afford decent houses, it's that the suburbs in which they're um, where, where, that, where they're forced to live are increasingly culturally bereft. Yeah, that is definitely a big concern. Um, sort of having this development sort of, um, you know, popping up without actually planning for the social and, um, you know, physical infrastructure that we need to actually support healthy and vibrant um, communities. And so I think um, one area that we can really... Um, embrace is good design um, and looking at how design and architecture can actually impact on our communities and have um, benefits Uh, and that's even you know even in areas where we've got high and medium density there are ways of doing it well and I think as a society we should be looking at the best you know the best models um, that are available to actually deal with that. So, um, for example, an emphasis on using quality materials that will last, good design that um, allows people to have space and um, social interaction with their neighbours, having open space outside and trees um, so that people, you know, have green space um, to enhance their lives. We know that all of these things have benefits, um, but often they're lost in the calculation of um, profitability. So I think that as a society, we need to have a stronger culture of good design. Yes, I mean, we're doing this interview in Brunswick, a city, uh, a suburb that's being transformed um, dramatically, and I mean personally, I've nothing against high density housing. In fact, I think high density is actually good. I've always, you know, I like that that notion of being around people, and that's what city life is to me. But the high density building, the buildings that we're seeing everywhere, are so incredibly ugly, and not only ugly, but incredibly cheap. And you get this sort of sense that rather than making beautiful new buildings that are going to, you know, last forever. We're creating the, you know, the the slums of the future, I guess. Yeah, as the National Trust, we always say that we we want contemporary design to be the heritage of the future. But looking around, you know, walking down Brunswick Street, there's a lot of, oh, sorry, Nicholson Street, there are a lot of examples of buildings that, you know, then they're not going to be the heritage of the future. They're poorly designed, the materials are poor. And I think that we're actually going to have, you know, a crisis in years to come where the quality of these buildings is going to deteriorate. But it's actually going to be really difficult to address that um, because of the way that they're owned and managed. Um, So I think we need to be thinking more about the long term and less about, um, you know, our profits now. And I agree that, um, you know, medium and high density doesn't necessarily have to be ugly. It doesn't have to be um, a poor planning outcome. It can be really positive. and, And, you know, I live in an apartment building that was designed in the late 1960s early 70s and it's a fabulous design it's you know really well designed I've got great connections with my neighbours um you know it probably replaced you know some single standing um 
single story 19th century buildings that were lost but it's added this new layer that has allowed you know allowed me to live in an inner city area that I love while still being able to afford it um, so I think that there are ways that you can balance all of these outcomes but we just need to make sure the pendulum swings in the right direction and certainly organizations like the Institute of Architects um, are you know leaders in um, promoting and celebrating good design and so there are people that we can look to to for this. Yeah, I mean, it's something we think about a lot. Like when I was at uni, it was still possible to live in Brunswick. It was still possible to live in Carlton, or that was becoming increasingly expensive. Suburbs like St Kilda had this p- population of people who weren't necessarily particularly wealthy, but their lack of material... Possessions were was in some to some degree compensated by the beautiful architecture that surrounded the amenities of those suburbs, and it seems to me that that has now all been lost. You can't afford to live in those places, and you're forced into these outer suburbs that, uh, you know, that don't have amenities and are aesthetically hideous. Mm, I think. You know, creeping gentrification is something that has always been an issue in like a city like Melbourne. But I think increasingly um, we're seeing suburbs like Fitzroy and St Kilda become out of reach for the, you know, the creative people that have made them really exciting places to visit and to live in. And, you know, developers are, are cashing in on, you know, the locations of these places and the vibrant surroundings that they have, but we're in danger of pricing out those people that actually contribute to that vibrancy. Do you have any examples then of areas that have been developed in a a way that, I don't know, is socially responsible and aesthetically pleasing? I mean, we can all think of examples that, you know, have been terrible like Docklands or, or whatever but are there any examples that we can look to where this has been done well? Thinking about good examples I think Fisherman's Bend has the potential um, to set a new benchmark in in this and um, that's an urban renewal area that um, a lot of planning is going into at the moment and in, in planning for this um, you know area I think that the authorities are learning the lessons from Docklands and trying not to repeat them. And um, heritage has been a really important part of the work that they've done to um, to sort of have a look at what the sense of place is, who the communities are that value this area, what the history of this place is, so that this community, this new community, can be built on that. And I think one of the most important aspects is affordable housing and social housing, and that's um, a really big issue. It's in the news all the time. Um, it's something that often, you know, gets cut, um, you know, when people want to ensure that they get the best bottom line that they can. But in order to, um, you know, ensure that we've got vibrant communities that continue into the future, I think affordable housing is going to be an important part of that. I mean, it's interesting you use the word planning because, of course, the, the notion of a planned economy or a planned society is tremendously unfashionable. To, to, to today, I mean, most, econo- most economists, most politicians would be very much in favour of market forces 
And what the market forces seem to be delivering is cheap, nasty buildings that make a lot of money for people in the short term, but precisely because they're not planned, are simply, you know, one-off goods for developers and terrible for everyone else. Yeah, I think that the, um, you know, governments and, you know, the state government at the moment is trying to um, try and strike a better balance between, you know, opening up these places to the market, but also having guidelines and planning, um, you know, schemes in place that will encourage good design. And I think that's something that the current state government has pursued Um and it will probably take quite a few years to see the results of that and see sort of how that actually plays out um, in in city development. Um, but I think there needs to be a balance between those things. And I think we do have the tools to be able to encourage, um, you know, good design through planning controls and through providing incentives for developers to have better design. Um and so I think we need to use all of those tools in order to do that. Do you have any sense, and particularly any figures, I guess, of where the public stands on these questions? I mean, it's often assumed that worrying about old buildings is a quintessentially middle class, you know, it's something that the, the well-to-do can worry about in their, you know, in, in, in their day off. But what do the Australian people think about what's happening to their cities? Do we know? Yeah, I mean, the a lot of the, the evidence that I get in my day-to-day work is anecdotal, but I do get, you know, we get inquiries from people all across Melbourne, all across Victoria who are concerned about heritage places. We're actually involved um, at the moment in some research that's being done by a economist um, on what value people place on heritage and they're doing a broad survey of people um, from a range of different backgrounds to look at um, how people value heritage and what those demographics are and and what it is that they actually value whether it's 19th century buildings or whether it's you know post-war houses that you know are becoming popular um, now and I think um, that we certainly see um, an evolution in the sort of people that the kinds of people who are concerned about heritage over time. And at the moment, we're really involved with a number of communities that are really concerned about the future of post-war heritage. Um, That's a a kind of heritage um, that's not very well protected under heritage overlays and on the heritage register, even though it's a really significant period in our history. And we're now... um, developing a really deep appreciation for the design um, that went into places like this. Um, so that's that's an interesting shift. Um, and the people who are interested in those places um, tend to be younger, um, involved in the design profession, architects. Um, and, you know, it's, in, it's sort of the kind of people that actually started the National Trust back in the 1950s. Um, mm. So it's interesting. I mean, this is an old story, isn't it? There's lots of books out there uh, chronicling all the architectural marvels in our cities that have been bulldozed. I'm thinking of Robin Anir's book on Whelan, The Wrecker, um, for instance. But I think a lot of people perhaps don't know that so many of the buildings that we have that have been saved were saved by quite intense campaigns. I mean, you talked about Robin Boyd, but I'm also thinking of, say, the BLF in, in, in... 
in Sydney in particular in the early 70s, without whom the rocks would have been totally destroyed. And they played quite a big role here in Melbourne. They saved the Vic Market and other historical buildings. Do we need something like that today? I mean, without that kind of campaign, are we just going to see this rolling on? Well, I think at at that time, um, I think activism in some ways was the only way to save a building. And I think that now we actually have other tools. We have legislation to protect heritage. We're able to um, lobby for it to be protected in other ways. Um, but I still think that activism plays an important part. And we definitely see that seeing that played out um, up in Sydney around the Sirius. So it's like the next generation of, um, you know, the fight um, for the rocks and for Miller's Point. And that is about architecture, but it's also about a community and it's about generations of people who lived in that place that are now being displaced. So I think that that shows that that activist um, aspect of heritage advocacy is very much alive um, and it's, it's, it's still something that's really important today. And what about here in Melbourne? I mean, I know a lot of people are particularly concerned about the inner city hotels that seem to be vanishing at an extraordinary rate. The Corkman is the one that, um, you know, people know, but everywhere you go in the inner city, they're all for sale Mm. and they're often giving way to hideous apartment buildings. I mean, is that a done deal now or are we just losing all of those buildings? It's definitely not a done deal. I think um, we have lost some places, but I think that those um, examples have highlighted, you know, the challenges and also... um, opened the eyes of decision makers to realise that people care about these places and we need to do something about them to protect them. And I think progress is being made um, in doing that. But you, in making progress, you're always going, going to lose some places along the way. I think one of the most interesting campaigns that I've been involved in and it kind of... Um, reflects all of those battles that are going on with those individual places now was the Palace Theatre. Um, That, you know, amazing community-led campaign um, led by Rebecca Leslie, who became a heritage activist. Um, She'd never, you know, been involved in something like that before, but it was a place that she felt so passionately about and rallied this incredible community of supporters around her. And I think that... um, Ultimately, the decision on that building did not um, go the way we would have liked. We would, were not successful in saving that building as a theatre, um, although it's still empty now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens on the site. But I think it highlighted a number of important issues um, that we can now use in our fight to save other places. So maybe there is still hope. I've been talking to Felicity Watson, Advocacy Manager of the National Trust of Australia. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks.